and uh, for EPO, so that's emergency protection orders, which we've referenced, um, is a kind of protection order. It's like a restraining order that provides you with immediate protection. Uh, people get coverage from legal aid to assist with that, at least the initial process of that, regardless of their income. So everybody's entitled to assistance um, to get and to respond to emergency protection orders. Oh, that's a really good tidbit. I didn't know that. So that's that's good to know that, you know, if, yeah. if, if there's an emergency and police haven't been involved, but there's an emergency, you go down to the courthouse and, and you'll get help getting an EPO emergency protection order filed. to Justice. I am your host Evan Clark from Kahane Law and I have with me as usual my co-host Heather Mallard from Merrick Law. Hi Heather. Hi Evan. Hi Evan. How are you doing? Doing well. Good to see you. And we have our special guest Kim McDonald. Kim, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi Evan. Thanks. Uh, my name is Kim McDonald. I am a financial advisor and insurance advisor with McDonald Advisory at Raymond James LTD. Thank you for inviting me to be a guest on the program today. Always. It's an open invitation. <laughs> and an extra special guest today, Sarah Dargatz from Latitude Family Law. Uh, Sarah, Hi. welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. So um, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I say that you and Heather used to work together. We did. We worked together for a long time. We worked at uh, Legal Aid together and then at Latitude Family Law together. So it's been many years and I miss, I miss seeing her around. Oh, I miss you too, Sarah. <laughs> I mean, we'd be separated by the pandemic in any event, so. We would, yeah. Yeah, yeah kind of a bummer working separate these days. That's right. Mm -hmm. So um, what are you here to talk to us about today, Sarah? So I understand that we're going to be talking about a really fun topic, which is family violence and how that might affect a family law file. Um, as you said, I'm a lawyer, so I'm coming from a lawyer's perspective on how, um, how family violence might affect a family law file and specifically um, in Canada and Alberta. Yeah. And, oh, sorry, Heather. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Evan. Okay, I'll go. Um, it's such, what an important topic too, because, um, you know, family violence thrives on silence and on people not knowing their rights or what they should do. And so I really hope that this might in some small way help somebody who might be dealing with this as an issue. Heather? Yeah, there's a ton of fear involved in separation and divorce to start off with. And if there's family violence as an element on top of that, it's, um, it can be just terrifying. Um, I was just going to add that Sarah is not just any family lawyer. I think she has a real um, extra special knowledge of this area. When um, we worked together at the family law office, she headed up the emergency protection order team. So she's got a really deep and wide knowledge of this area. So, um, yeah, we're just really lucky to have her today. And uh, I'm looking forward to what she has to share with us. So thanks again for coming, Sarah. Yeah, of course. And thanks for that little intro. <laughs> so I guess to, to start us off, Sarah, um, how does family violence 
complicate the divorce process, the separation process? It absolutely adds a whole new dynamic to the divorce process. Uh, a lot of lawyers really avoid files where there's family violence as a dynamic, and that makes it even more difficult on a case, like for some people looking for representation, which is really important to have when there is a dynamic of family violence on a file, allegations of family violence. Um, uh, it can affect the outcome, like what we're actually looking for at the end of the day in the divorce. Uh, in some cases, not always, but in some cases it can affect the actual substantive outcome. Um, and regardless of what issue we're dealing with, it's most likely going to affect the process that we use to resolve the matter. So when we're talking about and I'm sure this is something you've talked about on the podcast before, uh, when we're talking about getting to a resolution about a divorce, whether that's resolving the property or the support or the parenting issues, one of the most important decisions you can make is what process you choose to use to get from, from separation to settlement or to court order, right? And family violence is going to inform the process uh, and those dynamics of family violence are going to inform what processes might be the best process to use. Yeah, we have talked about that a little bit uh, because one of the things we covered in the past was collaborative law. And of course, that's not generally an appropriate way to proceed where family violence is an issue. Um, yeah, maybe I'll comment a bit just sort of as an introductory matter. I mentioned earlier, I'm coming at this from the perspective of a lawyer, not as a psychologist. And so I just want to give that little disclaimer that when I talk about kind of the, the dynamics and the psychology of family violence, I have no formalized training in that area. I have taken some professional development in that area and certainly working with um, files that have family violence on it have given me some perspective, but I, I am definitely not an expert in the psychology of it. Um, but one thing I've learned in my experience is that we have to pay a lot of attention to what kind of family violence we're talking about. Oftentimes we'll talk about family violence on a, on a divorce or separation matter and make an assumption about what that means or what that looks like. And that's obviously dangerous in any situation is to make assumptions about what someone's story looks like because family violence, just like most things in life operate on a spectrum. And so, uh, there's there's different theories out there about how we classify in different typologies of family violence, but it is important to give some thought to what kind of family violence we're talking about and then how that might influence things. Because we can go from a spectrum of a one-time isolated, more minor, it's still a problem, but more minor instance, which can be mitigated and managed, to the far end of the spectrum where it's an ongoing history of coercion and control and power dynamics that is really very, very troubling. And we're going to respond in a very different way to those kinds of situations on the other end of the spectrum. So one of the first things we have to do, whether we're the lawyers or the psychologists or the judges involved, is to look at when we talk about family violence in this particular family, what are we talking about? What are the dynamics? Um, and that can that first step can be a really difficult step to to get through. Sometimes it's easy. Maybe there's been criminal charges and a criminal conviction. Maybe there's been something so serious that children's services or or medical care was required. And so it's easy to figure out that there's been serious violence. Sometimes it's allegations and it's one party's word against the other party's word. And the very first thing we're doing is having an argument about whether or not there is or isn't family violence. And sometimes that's an important thing to resolve. Sometimes, like if it's a purely financial matter, we may not have to resolve that question. Um, 
And so uh, that the very preliminary matters of what kind of violence, did the violence even happen? What are the dynamics here is such a very important preliminary matter to resolve, um, which then informs how the substantive outcome is gonna be affected and how the process is gonna be affected. So I have a follow on question then. So yeah. where it's a situation where there is not criminal charges laid and it's, um, you know, one person is saying they felt like the other person just is emotionally abusive and controlling. Where do you, where do you go with something like that? I mean, and, and who knows, like, I don't, I don't know, uh, maybe it's substantiated, maybe it's not. How do you get to the bottom of something like that? And then once you're, once you figure it out, then where do you go with that? Yeah, so again, I come back to you a little bit about this answer can really depend on what issues we're trying to resolve. So if we're dealing with parenting, we always have to factor in family violence. That's required under the Family Law Act and now under the Divorce Act. Considering family violence and the effect on the kids is an absolute requirement. So you have to figure out what's going on. If we're dealing with purely financial matters, um, the, the outcome is not affected by the family violence, except maybe in some limited circumstances, possibly on financial abuse and how that might affect spousal support. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, half the property is half the property, whether there was abuse or there wasn't abuse. Spousal support entitlement, like I said, could be affected by the, the abuse, but if someone didn't work, it doesn't really matter if they didn't work by their own choice or because that was part of the dynamic of the abuse, they didn't work. And so there's a financial consequence to that. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things is to sort out how I'm saying a lot of things happen first. <laughs> they can't all happen first. <laughs> but <one> of, <laughs> how we look at that first analysis of whether or not, like what kind of family violence we're dealing with is also part of that analysis is, well, what are the issues that we're dealing with? Because it may or may not actually matter if there is family violence. So well, with a question like that of um, was there, if there's the allegations are, are psychological abuse, emotional abuse, I might first have a conversation with my client about whether or not that's going to affect the outcome or not. Um, I have a file right now where it's just support. There's no kids. They're older. It was a second relationship. Um, my client is alleging a lot of psychological abuse. Um, the other side says there wasn't. I've had to talk to my client about the fact that it really is not going to affect the outcome anyway. It's really just math uh, in this case. Um, she's entitled to spousal support regardless of the family violence. So it's we really don't need to dwell on it as part of the negotiations and, and talking about what the, the outcomes are going to be. It does, though, absolutely affect my interactions with my client, how my client makes decisions, and how what process, like I said, what process we're going to use. And so um, sometimes when there's family violence, mediation or collaborative law is appropriate. If you have skilled lawyers involved um, or a skilled mediator who can manage that, who can be aware of it. And again, depending on the kind of family violence we have, it might be appropriate. And someone might be more open to admitting they committed family violence if that conversation is happening behind closed doors in a without prejudice confidential discussion instead of having that put out in an affidavit that's going to court and as part of a public record. So you might, there may be times where mediation and collaborative law is absolutely appropriate where there's been family violence. Sometimes it isn't because if we're talking about something like emotional abuse or psychological abuse, which often is tied to the, those power dynamics, well then maybe we can't have a conversation with 
the two parties in the room because they're just they're just not on equal footing even with lawyers with them um i feel like i've gotten off track a little bit from your initial question uh but you know i'm trying to going to the very first question of how does family violence affect a file it affects the file in so many different ways because you're thinking about it from all these these angles of how does it affect our our outcome the substantive outcome and then there's so many different ways that it could affect process so I think your original question about what do you do about emotional or, or psychological violence, first of all, I'm going to ask, do I need to, do we need to decide if this is what happened or not? Is this a, is, is it okay if my client just tells me that and I believe them and the other side says no and their lawyer believes them? It, it, it may not, we may not have to resolve that. Um, I can just believe my client or I might not even believe my client and it might not matter if I believe them or not, um, if it doesn't change the outcome. Um, where it might affect the outcome though of course if we're dealing with parenting uh then we might need to sort that out uh, the, ideally on a parenting file if there's been any allegation of family violence we get a psychologist or social worker involved that's the ideal we get someone who actually knows what they're talking about who can provide some insight whether that's education or an assessment or some sort of guidance about how to move forward and to assess what might be best that's ideal doesn't happen in every file because there's a cost associated with that. Um, obviously, professionals need to get paid for their work, and that's not something that's covered by our government. So um, sometimes it's not something people can afford. Um, but ideally, we're going to get a, a psychologist or someone who actually has training in this area to provide some insight, not only to the clients and the court, but also to us as lawyers about how we can move forward with the family. How does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, it's good. When you say social worker, what exactly does that mean? Uh, like when we get people involved uh, in this kind of role. So um, if we're in a collaborative situation, oftentimes in, a, in collaborative law, we bring in uh, family specialists, I think is the title we use for them. And so that might be a psychologist or usually a, a master's in social work, an MSW. So someone who's uh, not... Social work in Alberta is a very broad uh, profession. There's a, there, there's a real range of education and experience levels for someone to be called a social worker. Um, to get to the level where we're talking about, we're talking about a social worker who has clinical experience and is most likely has an MSW um, in order to, to qualify to do this kind of work. So the, the people, so that in that's, and then the same people that we see in the family specialist roles in a collaborative setting are also generally the same people we see if we're in litigation. So if we go to court we might need some help from a psychologist either do an assessment or an intervention and they their reports go back to the court um, to provide assistance to the court and to us as lawyers and it would generally be the same people the, the psychologist or the msw um, and generally we we work with a pretty small pool of people who do this work because it is so highly specialized and you want to make sure that the people who are doing the work know what they're doing and have the have the training um, there's there's some organizations that really focus in on this kind of work for example the afcc which is um, the association of family and conciliation courts which is a organization throughout the U.S. and some provinces in Canada, including Alberta and Ontario. Um, they provide lots of really good training and workshops and conferences about this kind of work. And so, um, yeah, we have to be really careful that we're working with the right people because it's such a, a difficult area of, of the family dynamics and how that interplays with the law. 
I have so many questions for you, Sarah. You're, you're providing so much valuable information. Um, I guess the question that comes up to my mind is, um, I think you, if you're watching this podcast and you're thinking about leaving a relationship, you have some, you have little kids and maybe you're fearful about the process. You're scared about who's going to be making a decision about whether my future ex is going to see the kids, how they're going to see the kids. What does that look like and who makes those decisions at the end of the day? Because I, I think that would be a big concern for me. Uh, sure. mm-hmm. Um. So again, it's going to be so fact specific. So it's hard mm. to talk in generalities yeah. and a lot of it will depend on what's available in your particular area. Um, and then what's going on in terms of has there been police involvement? Are there charges and conditions connected with that? Has there been child welfare involvement um, and them providing assistance or, or some sort of intervention or some sort of investigation? Um, Cause that can definitely change the dynamic of how things go. Um, and also, too, of course, it depends on the kind of violence we're talking about again, right? So if the violence can be mitigated or if it can't be mitigated, right? Um, and so the response from the individuals and then possibly from the court is going to change depending on that. When we're looking at initial separation, um, oftentimes uh, it takes, if someone has the luxury of planning ahead that's a great thing to to do if possible um sometimes separations happen because there's been a big incident instant um incidents it's not the right word there's been a big there's been something big that's happened you know there's been an assault there's been something scary that's happened police are called someone gets an emergency protection order it's the scary time that wasn't planned for and it just happened and now you're separated and have to deal with it sometimes though people have the ability or the foresight to or the resources to plan for that leaving and to um, work with a an agency that specializes in in leaving family violence situations so like a women's shelter or um a resource center in their area that has support workers. Um, and again, the, the availability of services really depends on where you are, where you live, whether it's in the city or rural or from province to province, country to country, it's really gonna vary. But if you're able to do some planning in advance, that can be really helpful um, so that you can leave in an orderly way, go to a safe place or possibly get an order that has the abuser leave the house and you stay in it. Um, I think your original question was who makes the decision? and um, the, the answer to that is really the same as it would be in any file, which is it's either a judge or it's the parties themselves who make a decision about what happens with the kids. Um, and what happens with the kids will really change over time. Right after separation, that's generally a really scary time for everybody because there's so many unknowns. It's, it can be a time of increased violence. Statistically, there's increased violence right after separation. Um, and it's also just we just don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the next step is going to be. And sometimes I've had cases where I've been really worried about my client right after separation. It's actually turned out to be okay. And the response from their ex has been surprisingly chill because maybe they realize now the spotlight's on them. It's time to behave. Sometimes the worst does happen and people react really poorly and you have to be able to respond quickly. So um, a lot of times in those initial stages, if there's a real concern about increased violence um, or that the violence might be 
perpetrated as against the kids, or there might be a risk of abduction, that might be a time where it makes sense to get a really quick court order and have a judge step in and make a decision to protect the kids um, if, if there's that risk there. Now, going to a judge is always uh, an unknown. You're dealing with a judge who's bringing their own ideas ideas and understanding of family violence to the table with their own history, their own biases. Um, and these kinds of initial orders are really made off the cuff in, in short court appearances. Um, so you never really know what you're going to get. Um, but it may be that it, it's really appropriate to get a court order just to keep the peace. And then maybe you explore, is there room for settlement or negotiation? Um, so decisions are going to be made, like I said, always either by a judge or by the two parties together. And sometimes we're surprised at how people can make decisions together. Or, you know, sometimes people just don't want to go to court. So they come to agreements that they don't love, but they're okay with because it's good enough for now instead of going to court. And, and sometimes that benefits the, the person who has primary care of the kids and, and is protecting them. So it's a hard answer. It's a hard thing to answer because each file is so specific. And I can look back at the different people that I've assisted and every story has been so new, so unique. And there hasn't really been a clear path of like, here's what we're going to do. And here's what it's going to look like. We've planned for some things and the opposite happened. We've planned for other things. And that is the thing that needed to be done. Um, so it's, if you can, if you do have the luxury, like I say, of planning ahead, having a lawyer on side, before you leave, if that's possible, or shortly after you leave, um, or in the very least having supports, um, that's going to definitely set you up for success. I think that's true um, for a lot of matters. Um, like the, the lawyer that you connect yourself with early on can really influence how things go down the road, even where there isn't family violence on a file, that you want to make sure that the lawyer is a good fit for you um, in terms of what approach you want, what kind of knowledge they can bring to the table and, and how much time they have to give to you. You know, sometimes I just don't have enough time to give to clients who need a lot from me because of these family situations. And so I might not be the right lawyer for them, even if I have the experience, right? Cause I just don't have the time. So it's good to connect as soon as you can with a, with some professionals who can guide you through the process. That, that brings up a question for me, uh, your answer to Heather's question, which is, um, I, and I don't know the proper name for this entity because even the government seems to publish different names for it, but child, child and family services, child protection. Child welfare, yeah, yeah. All yeah. those, all the above, yes. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, what are they called? And then second of all, um, <laughs> I'm just thinking from the perspective of somebody who might be experiencing abuse um, or have seen things that they... They might, they're thinking about reporting it, but are terrified to do so because it's really terrifying to get the government involved in your family life. Mm. Um, yeah, so first, what are they called? So when it comes to child and family services, which is I think what they're maybe technically called, uh, colloquially, um, child welfare is what I call them. Heather actually did a fair amount of work on child and family services matters back at legal aid. Um, sure so did. she might actually be a good person to answer some of these questions about what it looks like when they're involved. Mm. Okay, Heather. Oh, okay. Uh, I didn't expect to be in the hot seat. Um, 
I, I mean, they are there to protect the children. So that's the goal of um, child and family services. And um, of course, the experience of any family or parent or individual is going to depend on, like Sarah said, sort of the circumstances of the case and um, who you end up working with. So the idea is that the family should be supported um, to work through a separation while keeping the children safe. So if that means that children and family services will support the, um, uh, the person who's experiencing family violence to um, leave the relationship safely with the children and get a court order, um, then they can participate in that process. They'll do investigations. They'll um, you know, uh, do those kinds of things to ensure that the family, that the children are safe. Um, but it can feel or can be, in fact, intrusive to have a government agent in your life and in your home. Um, it can be scary to have someone looking over your shoulder, particularly when you've been experiencing abuse um, and monitoring whether or not you're doing a good enough job now protecting your children from um, your former abuser. Um, so certainly they are an important part or can be an important part. Um, they can be very supportive. Um, but it's also a court and or government process. So um, and I think that was I, a I try and I'm trailing off because I'm <laughs> reluctant to say, I don't want to say anything bad because I don't intend anything bad, but it, it can be, it can be opening a can of worms sometimes that people don't expect their opening, if, if that's a fair enough way of saying it. And Heather, I, I, my apologies to throwing that at you and I that <laughs> not out because, because it can be a bit of a, a, a hard thing to answer about the role of, of child and family services. I think I agree with everything you've said. Um, I know that your experience most of the time in the past was representing parents who were arguing with the government about whether their intervention was appropriate or not. So you're coming from a very particular perspective of, and, and, and the kinds of files and the things you've seen go wrong on a file, right? Whereas where we, where things go right, um, where child welfare has done a great job in supporting a family to move beyond family violence, we probably wouldn't see those kinds of files as lawyers in our, in our, former experience. Um, I've had cases where um, Shell Wilfer has been so helpful in um, helping my client and children leave family violence and providing really helpful information. One of the things that they can do is investigate in a way that I can't as, as someone's lawyer. I can't go into the house and look and see what's happening. I'm not going to report whether or not I see holes punched in walls or not. So sometimes the investigation that's done by Children's Services can be really helpful. And we have to go through a process to get that information brought into the private family process. So kind of the language around this would be, if I talk about private family stuff, that's as between the two parents or the, the family members versus a child welfare process, which is almost more like, more like criminal law where you've, the state is involved, the government's involved. Um, and so 
um, I don't know, we don't call it public process, but it's not a private process. So we've got this government agency involved versus as between the two parents involved. So we have to go through a process to bring that investigation into the private process, but it's something that can be done and can be really useful. At the same time, sometimes, as Heather said, when you call them, things don't go the way you think they're going to go. And oftentimes the real power that child welfare has to make people behave better is to take their kids away. That's really the, that's the main hammer that they have is to apprehend kids. And when you've got one good parent and one abusive parent, taking the kids away isn't a great solution. The solution is to have the quote unquote good parent continue to parent the kids and have the bad parent go away. But that's not how child intervention works that they would then say, well, you as the quote unquote good parent, you need to go through the private process and get parenting of your kids. Uh You're not going to make that application for you. You're going to have to go out, find your own lawyer, make the court application and protect your kids. And if you don't, then we'll take the kids away from you. So they're they're They have a blunt instrument. That's the, the tools they have are very blunt. And sometimes they don't work very well for, for situations where we've got a Uh, parent as against parent and we have to be careful too about them getting too involved in taking sides they're also human beings sometimes they they pick the wrong side i think sometimes if you have a very skillful abuser who's quite good at manipulation they can manipulate child welfare workers just as much as they can other people in their lives Uh and so we want to be careful about empowering the government agency workers too much um to take sides in these kinds of situations when really it should be left up to, to judges to actually decide where, where the kids should ultimately be. Right. So that all sounds pretty terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, it's also complicated by the fact that, um, anybody who thinks a child is in danger has a legal obligation to report it. Mm-hmm. And so even if you don't know if the outcome is going to be good or not, if you think a child is in danger and this would apply to professionals involved in kids' lives, if a teacher thinks that a kid in their class is being abused or if a doctor has evidence about that or a dentist has evidence about that, they have a legal obligation to report it. Um, I think the only people without the legal obligation to do so are lawyers. Um, we're exempt from all sorts of things. Uh, but uh, there is also, in addition to that, a legal obligation to report, right? So sometimes it comes to the attention of children's services, whether you want it to or not. Um, in a perfect world, in a perfect system, they would be a great resource at all times. But we're just dealing with human beings who are underfunded. Yeah, and I guess I, it's important to say, like as you mentioned there a little bit, Sarah, is... You know, I, I have uh, experienced in the past a client who had kind of an extreme, like, uh, incident of family violence and uh, child and family services helped there, um, really, because it's like, it's like another layer of protection for the mother and the children. In this case, it was the mother. And, you know, they followed up with the mother to make sure that she was safe mm-hmm. and um, didn't stop following up until they were comfortable. And, you know, and they repeatedly t- told the mother, you need to leave the province. Luckily, the mother mother left. Everything is fine so far. So um, there are, in those extreme examples, they're an obvious resource that, that you have an obligation to, as you said, to report to, and they can help. It can help also give you some comfort if you're the one experiencing the abuse or protecting the children who are feeling experiencing the abuse. 
of, about what you need to do legally. Because sometimes you can be, I'm not sure, am I allowed to take the kids and leave? You know, because there's rules against that as well. And so when you have them saying, no, you need to do this right now, then make makes things a little more clear for you. Mm -hmm. But yes, all that is tempered with, but be careful because they have a hammer and that's kind of the only thing they have. Yeah. And, you know, part of me listening, listening into our conversation, I think, boy, if I was someone in a situation of family violence thinking of leaning and I was listening to this podcast, I don't think I'd be particularly comforted by the conversation we've been having to say, yeah, everything's going to be OK in the end. I can call child welfare or I can I can get a lawyer and go to court and it's all going to be OK and it'll be fine in the end. And, you know, that's that's really unfortunate to me that that. Like that is just the nature of it is I have lots of examples where I've been able to help people leave situations of family violence amongst other professionals who have also helped um, and people are safe and they're okay and their kids are doing really well and they came through on the other side and it was scary for a little bit, but it was, they're so happy they left and things are good now. But there's also files where things went sideways. Um, things were really scary for a long time. Things got really bad before they got better. They, you know, eventually got better, but it was hard before it got there where child welfare intervention went sideways or the psychologist involved, um, was manipulated and confused. And, you know, I'm, I, I wish I say it was, a, was a perfect system, but it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think we have to be honest about that. I think we can't say, you know, just call a lawyer and everything's going to be okay because yeah. someone's going to be sorely disappointed. They have to be prepared that there's going to be some bumps along the way. And I often talk to my clients, even in a, in a standard divorce, is that often right after the separation, those first few months, it's really chaotic. Things are unknown. You don't know what the money situation looks like. You don't know what the parenting looks like. That's a really tough time. But generally, that's the worst of it. Like, it, it almost always gets better eventually just how how long you have to wait for it to get better is going to vary from from file to file but it's, it's going to be hard um i i haven't kept stats about um which you know which of my files you know everybody's super happy now at the end of the day and which ones had took some unexpected turns um and i think like i said that's just the honest the reality of how the legal system works and it is much slower than anybody would want it to be. It is much too hard to find a lawyer with skills and willingness to take on these files. It's much, like lawyers are expensive. I'm expensive. We just, we have to be to, to make our ends meet. Um, psychologists are expensive. Like the system just isn't as good as we would like it to be and we have to operate in it. Right. And so we do our best. So I'm hoping someone listening who's thinking about leaving isn't deterred from by this conversation. I'm hoping that they are just, um, there is light at the end of the tunnel, usually, most of the time, the vast majority of the time. Um, but it's, it's never a guarantee, and I, I never make my clients promises about what the process or outcomes are ever going to look like. So we just do not know. Yeah, no, I, identify oh, sorry, I'm going to cut you off there. No, that's okay, Kim. Let's hear from you. I, I have a question about identifying family violence. So I was thinking from the point of view of I've uncovered this podcast on family violence. I have a friend who I'm concerned about. I think there's family violence in the house, but perhaps that person has been living within that problem for so long that they don't know how bad it is. And I'm curious what the many faces of violence are. And as an outside person how do we what does it take to move inch that forward into a positive way 
Ooh, that's a that's a really good question. Um, and I'm gonna again do a little discla disclaimer and say I think there's probably a lot of other better people who would <laughs> who could answer that question for you rather than me. Um, identifying the kind of family violence is really hard, especially if you're an outside observer just getting glimpses of what's going on in a household. And just as kind of colloquially, I have found that sometimes the people who are in the worst situations are the ones who minimize it the most. And they're the ones, if you ask them, is there family violence? They'll say, well, no, but, and then there's all these things where, yeah, that's family violence. Just because you haven't been, you know, hospitalized doesn't mean there isn't family violence. And that coercion and control, which is the kind of family violence we're most concerned about, often doesn't express itself in a physical way. It often expresses itself in financial abuse, psychological abuse, gaslighting, verbal abuse, stuff that's really easy to keep behind closed doors and can be hard to identify, right? Because, you know, it's, it's all in the context. I've, when I did a lot of emergency protection order work, I would often read in the transcripts of someone's application. They would talk about, he got that look in his eyes. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't have a lot of meaning objectively, but that has a lot of meaning for someone in a relationship. And you might even be able to think about your own relationships, maybe uh, maybe a parent who had a certain look and you knew what that meant, but could you prove what that look meant in court? Maybe not, right? Um, so it can be really hard to figure out what kind of violence it is, especially if the, the victim is not talking about it in an open and honest way, and they might not even understand it or appreciate it themselves. Um, and this is where um, there's lots of organizations out there that provide and resources online, videos, uh, training, webinars about how do we support victims of family violence, how do we recognize it, and then how do we help people um, guide them, provide, be a support to them. So if they want to leave, they can leave, or, or even if they've never thought about it, you can, you can raise that as an idea. Um, my, and so that's why I said, there's probably better people to answer this question than me. I'm generally coming along when someone's already left, um, and they're aware that they've come to realization that there has been some family violence. So I haven't had to, you know, be there. Thankfully in my personal life, I haven't had to deal with it at all uh, with with uh, with friends or family members. Um, I think the most important thing we can do, though, is be a listening ear for people um, and hear what they have to say and then point them to resources if they're interested in them. Right. But to to listen to people and to believe them when they report things that are, are troubling to them. I don't know. Does that answer your question, Kim? Yeah, what I'm thinking you're saying is if you're a good friend, you're going to listen to that person and you're going to find the resources rather than give them advice. You will find the people who specialize in helping them and guide them, you know, be that good buddy and, and maybe go with them or, or guide them towards those organizations that are already specialists on how to deal with them. And eventually they might land in your lap or uh, some another lawyer who specializes in family violence. Does that sound Right. I think I think that's good generalized advice. I'd be happy to hear like what Evan and Heather have to say about this and their experience. I I think generally, yeah. Um, there there's a stat that often gets quoted, and I have no idea how accurate it is, but you've probably heard that it takes someone seven times to leave an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that number is anywhere near accurate. It's it's been around for ages, so it probably could be updated. 
I think the idea behind that though is um, it's hard to leave abusive relationships. There's lots of reasons why people stay in them. And sometimes those are actually very like rational reasons to stay in these relationships, financial security. Mm-hmm. If there's been threats made against the kids or other threats of what will happen to you or your family, if you ever leave me like that, those can be very powerful and very rational reasons to stay in a relationship. Um, when you look at them in context, right? And so um, a lot of times, and if someone suffered trauma, if you ever do any work in like having a trauma-informed practice, we find out that people who have experienced trauma act in ways that appear irrational, but make a lot of sense to them. So sometimes we get people who experience trauma who really are numb and are non-reactive to things they should react to, or we get the opposite where someone is hypervigilant and they're freaking out about every little thing and that's the Mm -hmm. client who was just calling me right now, who I probably don't need to talk to, but it just hypervigilant about everything because, and that's because of their trauma and they're really difficult clients to have that they need the support. Right. Um, so people, it's hard for us as, as lay people or as people who aren't trained in the area to interpret behavior. Um, and it can be, and it can be confusing when you say like, look at what's going on in your relationship. Why are you still with this person? And it doesn't make sense that they're not leaving. Um, but maybe they just need to know that there's some supports. Maybe they just need to know that there's a path out that if they connect with, you know, this agency, that agency can help with that path for what, what their options are to, to leave. Maybe there's women's shelters in the area. Maybe there's an emergency protection order they could access. Maybe there's, you know, this other resource, if it's a financial issue, you know, you, there's benefits available through child or child, not child, through uh, income supports that will help people who leave financial uh, abusive relationships. And those are all things that people might not know. So yeah, I think if we were to give like one little bit of advice to the to the friend of the person who's in an abusive relationship, it's see about getting them connected to some experts in the area. Um, and in co- this COVID times, we've seen a lot of agencies really expand how they offer services. Um, I'm connected with an agency in Edmonton called the Today Center, which is a really good first stop for people who are um, experiencing family violence. And um, they're doing everything virtually right now. So in theory, they could be helping people all over the province, all over the world, quite frankly, do safety planning, talk about what their next steps might look like. There's really no geographic barriers. I mean, they're really going to have knowledge about what's available in their area. And in terms of actual physical supports, like getting them a phone or or giving them a ride or getting them to a shelter, that's not going to be possible, but they can certainly provide education and insight and counseling. Um, And that's certain. I'm sure the Today Center is not the only agency that's had to adjust to, to virtual interactions. Right. So, what effect, changing gears a little bit, what effect does family violence have on uh, the issues where there's no children involved? You've kind of made reference before saying, oh, it's just math, it's not gonna, but I just want you to talk about that a little bit. Like, what about spousal support? Um, We have like compensatory or non-compensatory grounds for spousal support. Do you get any kind of compensation for having to deal with an abusive spouse for all these years? So the law on financial matters specifically say that conduct is irrelevant. So whether or not someone was a good partner or bad partner is is considered irrelevant. And I think the rationale behind that is um, we didn't want people to have to delve into 
did you have enough? We have no fault divorce, right? We don't get into whether or not someone cheated on you or didn't cheat on you. We don't need to get into the details of whether or not someone did laundry enough or kept the house clean enough, right? We don't really get into valuing how good people were as spouses. So when we look at things like compensatory or non-compensatory support. So for the non-lawyers in the discussion, when we talk about spousal support, um, one of the first question we ask is, is someone even entitled to spousal support? Because it's not a guarantee. Um, and so some ways that you become entitled to it, one of them would be compensatory basis, meaning something's happened in the relationship that needs to be compensated for. But so the decisions in the relationship had an effect on your income earning capacity and your financial situation. The classic example is having kids and going on mat leaves. So if you have kids and go on mat leaves, then you're going to, it's going to affect your career. That's, that's how that works. Or maybe you relocated from a place where you had a good job now to where your spouse works and that affected your income earning capabilities and affected your job. And so they need to compensate you. It's almost like a classic lawsuit. Like something happened to you and there's, you, you lost out, you need to be compensated for it. And then there's non-compensatory support, which talks about the needs someone has and the financial consequences of the breakup itself. So going from, you know, a, you know, combined incomes, satisfying everybody's needs to, when you take those incomes apart and look at them separately, somebody has a need and the other person has the ability to pay. Um, and, you know, that could be tied up with health issues or with just their history or their choices. So in a case of family violence, you know, one way that we see family violence uh, rearing itself is in financial abuse. And so that could look like someone not being allowed to work. Um, and so that's going to have a financial consequence on their career. Um, it could look like having zero control over how the money is spent. So the abuser goes and spends a ton of money and the other person has no say in it and puts them into a ton of debt. And then here we are at the end of the relationship with a ton of debt that on the face of it is going to be divided 50, 50. Um, it could be sometimes the reverse where all the property is in the victim's name because then if the abuser stops paying their credit is going to be the one that's that's affected and i don't know kim if you have some insight too on the financial consequences the financial abuse if you've seen that in your work um, but there's a variety of different ways that people can be really bad to each other <laughs> in a financial way and that can have an effect on on entitlement to support or i, I gave an example there of, of property so for example you've, you've racked up debt that's inappropriate for the most part though like I said, if someone doesn't work, generally for spousal support, we're not going to delve into why they didn't work. We make an assumption that in the relationship, if one person didn't work, that was a joint decision, whether it was or wasn't, and it has a financial consequence. So if they didn't work because they were lazy, they didn't work. And you, have, you might be entitled to, to spousal support because you, you don't have a career because you were lazy, but your partner put up with that for many years. Or you didn't work because your partner didn't let you. Well, they still have to pay spousal support because they didn't let you work. So do you see what I mean? Is hmm. The reason for the entitlement or the, the compensation, whatever the fact was that gave rise to their needing to be compensation, um, we don't necessarily have to get into the reasons. The, the reality was the relationship was what it was, and there was the financial consequences of it. So it is there. It's part of the story, right? So if we were to go to court about spousal support, that would be part of the narrative. That would be in the affidavit. But ultimately, we're looking at where are people at financially at the end of the relationship, regardless of how they got there. Well, not regardless. I mean, how they got there does come into play to some degree. But I think it's not as relevant as people maybe want it to be. I have had people come to me and say, he abused me for years. I need to get something out of this. I should get the house because I was abused. 
that's that's not that those two aren't actually connected under the law. Hmm. And so a lot of times where there's no kids, I'm having discussions with my client, if they're the ones alleging the family violence, about the relevance of their particular fact scenario and how it may affect the outcome. So it's not totally irrelevant, um, but it's not maybe as relevant as some people might want it to be. <laughs> but I think there's probably good reason for that, right? So it's, it's all part of the story, um, but certainly family violence isn't a... You know, there isn't a dollar amount attached to the fact that there was family violence. And um, it's it's definitely going to affect how we negotiate things, right? So someone who is very controlling and coercive um, may not be super interested in paying spousal support to their ex who just left them and now is taking half their stuff, right? Um, Someone with that mindset um, and someone who, you know, possibly has a personality disorder or some sort of other, you know, antisocial disorder that's affecting how they interact with the world, um, they're probably going to fight tooth and nail against spousal support. So the process is going to be affected that way in terms of how hard you have to have to fight, how reasonable everybody's going to be. Um, and, you know, that's going to affect whether you have to go to court or not. That was a little rambly, but hopefully that kind of got to the, got to the, the heart of the matter. Uh-huh. No, yeah, it did. I think it did. Yeah. You've kind of got me thinking, Sarah, uh, about those situations where the abuser sometimes will use process to their advantage as well. Um, So maybe if they have the financial um, upper hand, they can uh, hire a quote mark big gun lawyer or they can afford to delay proceedings they can drag things out they can um you know kind of use that process sometimes uh, against the other person um i don't know that i've come up with any magical solution for that but i suppose maybe it's just something that people should be aware of and um alive to um ahead of time I don't know do you have any comments about that yeah I agree that absolutely can be a way to continue the abuse so that the court process itself or the or the even the negotiation process um the abuse can continue throughout that process and sometimes lawyers are used um as proxies to continue abusing people which I think we as lawyers need to be really careful of and to watch out for that so if you're representing the person who's been accused of the abuse um and if your client insists, no, 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 is never abusive, but I want you to tell her that if she doesn't agree to what I'm proposing, then, you know, X, Y, and Z is going to happen, and I'm going to take the kids. Like, watch out for that stuff. And sometimes lawyers get sucked into perpetuating the abuse for their client. And I think we need to be aware of that. I think we also have to be careful when we're on the side of the person who's making allegations is that not every allegation is true. Not every allegation is accurate. It can be exaggerated. And there are people who suffer from personality disorders who make false allegations as part of their illness. So, um, tangent I'm on right now, but I think mm-hmm. as lawyers helping people on family violence files, we have to be aware and always have a bit of a, a distance and a filter, regardless of which side we're on, mm-hmm. and to stay as professional as we can um, to to avoid getting caught up in what's going on between the parties, because you never really know what, what is really going on. That was a tangent. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of the uh, what you were talking about, Heather, I think, yeah, that's absolutely true, is that delays can really um, cause problems. Um, the financial inequalities can cause problems. One thing that I always loved, though, about when we worked at Legal Aid is I always felt like 
the lawyers at Legal Aid were really good. <laughs> of course, I'm speaking about us, um, but our <laughs> colleagues as well. And so I felt like, isn't it great that the people who are qualifying for legal aid are getting good representation. And I mean, that's not always the case. I mean, I'm sure there's some dads once in a while who take a legal aid certificate, but there are some really good lawyers who work for legal aid. And so people who are poor are still hopefully going to have good representation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the most expensive lawyers are not <clears throat> the best lawyers. I can think of a few that, you know, people think they've got the big guns and, and really, you know, it, it might not, it might not actually pan out the way people think it will because of the financial inequalities, but it is, it is possible that mm-hmm. maybe you don't qualify for legal aid. You have to hire your own lawyer and you know, you're, you're not able to pay the money you want for someone who's more experienced, or you might not be able to afford a lawyer at all mm-hmm. where you've got yourself represented and you're then not only facing your abuser in litigation, they also have a lawyer and, and you don't, if there wasn't a power dynamic imbalance before there certainly mm-hmm. is now. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and not every family lawyer educates themselves about family violence and the dynamics. And like I said, can get caught up in being a proxy for the abuse. So for sure, that's one way that the litigation itself can continue the abuse. And even just our courts are slow and it's easy to manipulate that by asking for adjournments or delaying the process or being difficult in providing your disclosure. Um, I do like to think that um, at the end of the day at the end of the process there might be some opportunity to rectify some of that if there's some really bad behavior it might not be recognized initially but eventually if it continues and gets really bad it it eventually will get recognized that's not a guarantee um it's not always the case but sometimes it can and that can be remedied sometimes through a cost order where um if someone's behaved particularly badly throughout the litigation process they're gonna have to pay some money to the other side for for their legal costs so sometimes it gets addressed um, and it's something that I think lawyers, we should be aware of in terms of the steps that we're taking um, and how we can respond to them. And when our clients, one thing I often talk to my clients about is the fact that they're the expert on their ex, right? Mm-hmm. So if my client says, I think that the other side is going to behave this way, I should pay attention to that. Right. They're not always right. Sometimes they overreact. And especially in cases where things have really escalated, I often hear, well, I don't know what they're going to do. And that might be true. Right. But to the extent that they've seen this kind of behavior before, I should listen to what my client says. He's probably or she's probably going to react by not responding at all Mm -hmm. or they're going to react by being super aggressive or they're going to delay. I want to pay attention to their insight. They might be right. They might not be. But I want to have that as this is how this person could behave and I should be prepared for that. So if there is delays by changing counsel or by adjournments or whatever, I should be prepared to see what I can do to be proactive about some of those things. My, my style is I try, I try to be pretty, um, settlement focused right from the beginning of a file. And I try and have a pretty soft approach because I find that that leads to better results in the long term. But there are times maybe where you need to have that, go in, be assertive right from the start if there's the possibility for shenanigans or at least have a pretty short window on that, that accommodating approach where you might have to turn on the assertiveness dial a little bit sooner than you would otherwise um, just because of the person's other side's expected behavior. Um, I don't know if there's ever a need to be aggressive. I think it's always um, an assertiveness scale as opposed to Mm. an aggressive scale, but that's... Yeah, I like that, Sarah. I think that's a really important distinction. Um, People may think they want an aggressive lawyer, but I I don't honestly see how that um, benefits any file, really, anybody's um, matter. Assertiveness is important, right? Someone who's going to advocate 
for you and, and be assertive, but aggressive tends to denote something where you're like attacking. And I just don't, uh, yeah, I think that usually doesn't help matters. That's right. The pe people respond by attacking back, right? Or mm -hmm. disappearing. And the, you don't get resolution that way. And yeah. you don't get resolution whether you're litigating or you're or you're negotiating. Even in litigation, you tend not to get great results because everything just gets so inflamed. Sometimes back in the day when we could just sit in chambers and kind of what, you can still do that virtually, but it used to be you'd actually go to court and sit and, and watch chambers and wait your turn. It'd be sometimes so interesting watching the other people go ahead with their matters and you could really tell the ones that had devolved where nobody was being productive anymore this was just a mess you'd see on occasion two lawyers who were just every little thing they're fighting about and the judge is annoyed and clearly the clients are not being uh, are not being well served by that right yeah. and so that's that's yeah that's exactly the distinction i'm, I'm making because i think it's effective it's more effective to be assertive rather than aggressive and like to, to bring that around to like the our, our topic today um if you're able to afford to a higher lawyer or get a legal aid lawyer whatever if you're able to get a lawyer that can really help the person who is being abused because it first of all it creates distance between the other person right a, a protective buffer and gives the abused person a voice, a voice that perhaps they didn't feel that they could use or would be heard. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And one way I suppose um, that if someone has limited means and they're thinking, should I spend money on a lawyer or not? Because I don't have a lot of money to begin with. Um, if the issue really is parenting, um, oftentimes money is better spent on a psychologist than on a lawyer. Um, I recently have a, have a file where it's just lawyers writing letters back and forth about parenting and it, it's getting nowhere. And I said, you need to stop paying me to do this. We need a psychologist to actually come in and, and provide something useful and effective for you. So if someone has limited means, um, they might want to consider, well, is there a way to get a psychologist involved in some sort of process here to, to help us? Because um, that might be a better use of funds, especially for the kids. Um, and not only to like possibly fix the situation, but also if it, if it can't be fixed, then to provide really helpful information to the court so they can make better decisions. Um, the other thing too, is it's also possible to explore, um, a limited scope retainer with, with a lawyer. Have you guys talked about limited scope retainers at all? In, uh, so I'm not yeah. going to get like, I'm not going to like get too far into it because I, um, there's a whole other topic, but basically you're hiring a lawyer to do a very discreet thing. Um, and so if you have a file where it's, it's family violence and you don't have a lot of money, um, maybe a little bit of money, maybe you can hire a lawyer to just deal with the, the part that most stresses you out. Mm. Maybe that's communicating. Maybe that's helping you with service. Maybe that's just showing up in court, but otherwise you're taking care of things. You're writing your affidavits, you're doing some of the research, you know, people have to have a certain level of competence to be able to do that themselves. Um, but if someone does and they want to save money, well, maybe just bring in a lawyer just for the thing that is, is most scary or not even scary, but risky. Like what's the most risky thing that you're doing, especially when we're about family violence. Um, sometimes a really good consult with a lawyer will just set you on the right track, right? So maybe you can, we, char yeah. we charge for consults um, and a lot of, a lot of lawyers do, but maybe it's worth, you know, a couple hundred bucks just to have that one hour of really concentrated advice from someone who can put you on the right track, even if for the rest of the time you're going to be self-represented. So sometimes just a little bit could be, could be helpful when you've got limited means, but yeah, I think having a lawyer who kind of gets it is really it's going to be helpful, but it's not always practical. It's not always realistic to expect that someone will be able to afford that. Yes, very true.
and legal aid, like it's a really low level, right? So there's a lot of people who don't qualify yeah. for legal aid and still yeah. can't afford a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that a lot where there's people kind of stuck in this no man's land of they clearly don't make enough money to be spending thousand dollars on lawyers. Yeah. Uh, but they have too much property or have too much income that legal aid can't help them. That's a tough spot. Kim? I'm glad you guys brought up legal aid because I've been sitting here thinking for the average person, I don't think they really know all the bits and pieces there is to know about legal aid. Like my interpretation is if I'm looking for uh, legal advice, I can't afford it. I Google Alberta legal aid. I'm guessing it's a provincial thing. I don't know. Yeah. Then I picture a whole pile of dusty desks and people filing in tons of people and getting like, you know, like general advice, maybe like I have absolutely no idea what legal aid is i'm thinking it's completely free but maybe it's not who wants to tackle this one for the right. listeners we could do like a real short snapper i don't know whether you can like i was gonna say we could almost do a whole episode yeah, on legal aid but we should, <laughs> we should do one on legal aid like really it varies it's, it's provincial in canada and so it really varies from province to province some provinces don't provide assistance in family matters at all mm -hmm. um alberta still has crossing our fingers on its days, still has some services available to people, especially where there is family violence. Those are the kinds of files that they prioritize. And basically it's a, it's a, we call it a certificate system. So what legal aid basically does is it says, we're going to pay your lawyer for you up front and your lawyer is going to accept a lower rate. And, but then you'll otherwise have, have a lawyer just like, just like regular. Um, so um, it could be someone who works in the legal aid office. That's so it, where Heather and I used to work was called the family office. They've changed their name now. I think they're just legal aid family or whatever. Um, but so we worked in house for legal aid, but it, the experience for a client probably wouldn't be very different from going to someone who's in house versus someone who's in private practice. So now I still have legal aid files where I've accepted a certificate. So then the only difference is that I, I get paid less. So I can only take on so many of them. Um, and then when it's time to bill, instead of billing the client, I bill it to legal aid, legal aid pays me, but then legal aid turns around and, tries to collect from the client. So it isn't free. It is a reduced rate. It's 9240, 9420, 9240 an hour. 9240, yeah. And I always get them mixed up. 9240 an hour. So it's significantly less than what a private lawyer would charge. Mm -hmm. um, and legal aid will work with you and put you on a payment plan. Um, if money does come in from other sources, like if you sell a house or something, they're going to make sure that they get paid back. Um, but uh, so it's not free, but it's definitely a reduced rate. And you don't have to come up with the money up front, right? So that's the issue is like, um, I'm assuming my colleagues do the same as I, which is we get a retainer up front um, to make sure that our, our bills are going to get paid as we do the work to earn it. Um, and with legal aid, you don't have to come up with that money up front because that's what's going to be really hard for a lot of low income people is, is that initial injection of cash. Um, and if you want to add, Heather, I mean, yeah, you guys probably could do a whole thing about it, but that's kind of short and sweet. Yeah, and you just have to, you need to qualify financially, but the bar is is really um, fair, fairly low um, to qualify for coverage for legal aid. So that's, yeah, that's the... Yeah. And they'll look at income as well as your assets, right? Right. Um, yeah, so like you'd said, Evan, you might just have too much property to qualify if you own a home together or even a car or <laughs> have a pension. Yeah. The expectation would be you're going to cash in some of those assets to, to pay for a lawyer if you need one. So, yeah. um, it's, you know, it's, it's low, but we do see it in family. And so when I worked at the family law office, I had a lot of clients who experienced family violence when I was there in part, that was because 
that's where I had kind of been slotted in in the office as I was the person who dealt with those files uh, because of my role doing emergency protection orders. So I got out, but also because when people leave situations of family violence, it's not uncommon for them to be really poor. So if the dynamic is financial abuse and that person was with the person who stayed at home and they weren't really allowed to have a job or go out, when they leave their relationship, they don't have an income. They don't have an asset, any assets, right? So they're going to qualify for legal aid. Now, that's certainly not the experience of every victim of family violence. There's mm-hmm. certainly victims who are quite wealthy and who have jobs. Like Financial abuse doesn't always look like someone doesn't get to work. It can look like a lot of different things. And, and you could be out and about in the world and still be experiencing family violence at home. Um, so, I st- of course, I still get those clients. Uh, but there are, a lot of, there are a lot of victims of family violence who do qualify for legal aid. And uh, for EPO, so that's emergency protection orders, which we've referenced, um, is a kind of protection order. It's like a restraining order that provides you with immediate protection. Uh, People get coverage from legal aid to assist with that, at least the initial process of that, regardless of their income. So everybody's entitled to assistance um, to get and to respond to emergency protection orders. Oh, that's a really good tidbit. I didn't know that. So... That's that's good to know that, you know, if, yeah. if, if there's an emergency and police haven't been involved, but there's an emergency, you go down to the courthouse and, and you'll get help getting an EPO, emergency protection order filed. Good. That's right. And so there's um, in Edmonton and Calgary, there's duty counsel. So someone can meet with you and assess whether an EPO is appropriate or not, because it's not appropriate in all cases. It's a pretty narrow definition of, of what it, what meets the criteria. But if it does, then they'll guide you through that process. And right now, if you go on the legal aid website, there's a phone number for you to call, so you don't have to go down in person to the courthouse as well. And I think they put on some more lawyers for some extended hours for that as well. Mm-hmm. This is very Alberta-specific information we're giving right now. It's going to yeah. vary a lot from province to province and, and of course, country to country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, we, we've been going for about an hour here. Um, Heather, Kim, do you guys have any like last minute singers for Sarah? Hit me with a tough one. I know you've covered so much. I actually have like 1,000 questions still, but you know, it's, we'll have to have you back and I'll ask you some more questions. <laughs> some more questions. <laughs> you know, hopefully it's of interest to your listeners um, and helpful to them. Um, one thing, like it is a timely topic because the Divorce Act in Canada has just been changed to include family violence as a specific thing we have to look at when considering parenting. Um, and we haven't really talked about that a lot, and we don't think we have time to, to delve mm-hmm. into it. And it remains to be seen how that's going to affect outcomes, if it's going to affect them much at all. Um, because the law says you have to consider family violence, but it doesn't say like what that actually means for the outcome. Right. Mm. So considering it could mean I thought about it and I still think that shared parenting makes sense. Right. I thought about it and this person should never see their kid again. Right. So we don't know what the outcome is, but we do know they need to consider it. And we may see with time the, our appeal courts giving further guidance to the lower level courts about how you should consider it. Um, and family violence has been a consideration under the Family Law Act for a long time already. Mm-hmm. So it's already something that the courts were taking into consideration. But now there's this additional guidance from the from the legislation that says you, you really have to think about it. And the definition of family violence is quite broad under the Divorce Act. So it includes not just the physical stuff, but the psychological and the financial and all that. So um, that is an important change. And it's a real signal that I think we are learning more about how much family violence impacts kids 
that um, there's lots of science that says exposure to violence and exposure to conflict literally changes children's brains and leads to negative outcomes for the rest of their life, including, mm. you know, we see worse health outcomes, worse, worse um, employment outcomes. You know, when kids are exposed to violence and conflict, uh, it's really bad for them. And so we want to do whatever we can to, to limit that. And so the law is really just developing with the more research and the more knowledge we have about how important it is to think about family violence. But again, we have to be really thoughtful when we talk about family violence in terms of what kind are we talking about? Can it be mitigated? Can it be managed? Um, or is it, you know, totally unmanageable and it's just something that's inherent to this one parent and we need to really limit their interaction. So um, every file is going to be different and um, how that consideration of the best interests of the children and the role of family violence is going to change from, from file to file. Wow. Do you feel like there's sort of a process of trial and error as well in these kinds of files as you move forward? Like you said, uh, you know, there's a process, you have to try and figure out ways to mitigate it or make sure that that time with kids is happening safely. So do you, yeah, is there a process of trial and error? You try things out and see if it works and, and you shift it as the situation yeah. changes yeah I think so and you always want to ask is it is it safe to do that right mm-hmm. and so again it depends on where we are in that spectrum of family mm-hmm. violence and if there's reason to be concerned so sometimes the trial and error starts like the the person who we think is abusive they're just going to get a little bit of time maybe it's going to be supervised see how that goes if it goes well then maybe we'll extend it and if that goes well maybe we'll have it unsupervised but for a short period of time and and to to move up sometimes it looks the other way the opposite way where we say okay we've separated i don't know how my ex is going to respond to this separation and if they're going to um be a bad parent in the context of separation or not or Mm -hmm, or how that's mm going to look so sometimes parents are willing to try something really generous and so even where there's been serious family violence there's some parents and some judges who say let's try shared parenting and see how it goes and we try it and it works great and that continues Mm. or we try it and it doesn't work well at all and then we have to start looking at okay how how do we respond to the particular concern we have is there a problem with communication between the parents well then let's what, what can we do? Can we use an app to help them? Can we put some guidelines in place? Is the problem at exchanges? Everything's fine, except when the two parents exchange the kids, there's a blow up. Well, then right. can we mitigate that by like, okay, exchanges through the school or somewhere else to try and address that problem. Or is it a much bigger issue where the other parent is undermining the other one all the time, is not making good decisions for the kids, is harming the children, right? Because that, that, that certainly would happen too in a case of family violence. And then we might have to pull back. Of course, it's a scary proposition for parents to think that, you know, you have to try something and something could go wrong. Mm -hmm. But again, we're always just trying to take steps that are safe. Um, And I think that's what judges want too. even sometimes if we get it wrong or they get it wrong. We're always we're trying to do the best for these kids. Um, But so, yeah, I think it is a lot of trial and error. And that can happen even like afterwards and that's true as kids grow things are going to change right mm-hmm. there's a lot of parents who, who don't stick with the initial parenting plan because life changes the kids change their needs change yeah. and all the more in a case of family violence and, and yeah I think we see both ways right where we start really hopeful and generous with time and then it needs to be narrowed to fit what is appropriate or we start really narrow out of the abundance of caution and then if appropriate we kind of expand that time Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Yeah, well, I'm glad you covered that because that is one of the questions I wanted to talk about was, what about this new divorce act and the things it says? So I, but that was, I think that was a perfect, succinct kind of summary. And yeah. we don't really know what it means yet. Right. And I think that you could probably do a whole podcast or two or three with a parenting expert if they're willing to come to talk about what what does family violence mean for outcomes? Like when we have family violence, well, what, what is actually in the best interest of the kids? Mm-hmm. And I think that's who's actually going to provide you with the best information is the psychologists, the social scientists who have done the research to say, well, when we have this kind of violence, we see these kinds of outcomes are best for kids. When we've got this kind of violence, we can mitigate it. Um, there's, you know, I could, there's all sorts of things about contact resistance with kids. There's whole conference. I'm going to a whole week conference on contact resistance stuff with kids in June, um, where we've got alienation and estrangement and et cetera, et cetera. Like when we have family violence, the dynamics on parenting are really broad and it can be quite far reaching. And there's a million different ways to respond to the problems because mm-hmm. there's a million different problems that can arise mm-hmm. on these files. Mm-hmm. There's always kind of a tension between protecting, but also maintaining relationships, right? Um, yeah, because it's very uncommon for a court to say, you're out, you're not having any parenting time, you're never seeing your kids again, thank you, right? Like that, that just yeah. really isn't. And I've, I've never seen that. I've seen, yeah. like, I had an extreme case. Heather will know exactly what file I'm talking about because I talk about it all the time. Um, they had a case where dad was cut off from seeing the kids, but it was it wasn't like a forever. It was... If you get your act together, dad, if you can get some counseling for yourself and get better, then you could probably see your kids in the future. He hasn't. Um, but there was always that open door. Um, I also had a, you know, a file where the father was convicted of assaulting his two-year-olds, like no doubt. Like there was on video, no doubt, but he still had the opportunity to see his kids supervised. Um, because you know, that's in theory, a safe way to do it. And so, um, we're always looking at, is there a way to salvage the relationship to make it work for better or for worse. I'm not going to comment on whether or not those were the right decisions in those mm-hmm. cases. Those just mm-hmm. simply were the decisions. Yeah. Um, and I don't always see the outcomes often like when my file is closed, it's, I only occasionally get updates from my clients about how things turned out. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say something else to your comment, Heather, but I forget. Okay. <laughs> One more reason to have one more reason to have you back again, Sarah. Maybe, maybe, or even, you know, I'd be happy to come back if you want me to come back or, you know, there's other lawyers who specialize or not specialize, but um, have experience in this area of family violence. And, you know, like I said, the best information I think when it comes to family violence and kids and what's best for kids is probably from the psychologists uh-huh. or the MSWs about what the research tells us. Because I, like I said, I see a snippet of it and I know what a judge did and I know what happened at the end of the day in my legal case. I don't know what happens to these kids when they become adults. I don't know if that, if that decision was okay at the end of the day. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And what about for um, the clients? Having some support is probably helpful for them as well. Aside from having that mental health professional that might be helping with the legal side, having that support um, for themselves to help them emotionally. I, I like you often say, I, I, I'm not trained, um, to provide the psychological support so I can guide you as sensitively as I can through the legal process, but that's, that's just not my training to give the emotional support and guidance. Absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. I often ask my clients who have 
who allege that they've experienced family violence is to ask, are you, are you seeing a counselor right now? Do you have supports? Are you connected with a, um, connected with a, a support service and what they're able to afford and what they have available to them is going to vary. But at the very least, if they've connected with someone from the Today Center or connected with, you know, a, a worker from the city of Edmonton or connected with someone from John Howard, mm-hmm. in the very least, they should have some of that to process what happened and because I can only help with the legal side of things. And that's such a small, for any family divorce matter, the legal part of it is just such a small part of the the divorce, the separation. And that's all I can really help with. Yeah. (laughs) And you know that if that's all the help you got, if that's the only professional you paid, I think, I I think you're leaving a lot left unresolved by not addressing the rest of it for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you, Sarah. I'm sure we will have you back. We like you, so um, oh, <laughs> got, you got it in. Um, Kim, do you have any any final thoughts or questions? I, I think I got so much information out of this today. I know exactly what to tell people who contact me. I have had those calls before. People scared to reach out to a lawyer, family violence situation. I'm thinking, I don't know what to do. I think also what you've said today is the community is quite tight. So people who work in family violence, they're connected with lawyers and and psychologists and and other resources. So if you just reach out to one person and say, who do you know who does X, Y, and Z, there's going to be lots of names that come out. We'll do our best to put those resources on this podcast so people can start somewhere and not, not feel so stuck. So I think everything you've given us today is incredible. And um, whether it's for families, friends, or that person who is in that situation. There's a lot of stuff here that they can absorb and and take to move forward. Thank you so much. Great. Well, I was happy to do it. And um, it's an area that I think this is the beginning. A lot of lawyers, we don't want to deal with it. It's hard. These are hard files. Um, There's a lot of people who avoid the work. And I, you know, I certainly can't have too many family violence files on my caseload at a time because it's just a lot of hard work. Um, So I'm really and so a lot of lawyers, we just want to kind of ignore it and pretend it's not a dynamic on our files, but it is on so many of them. And so the more I can talk about it, the more opportunities I have to get out there and talk about it and how important it is for lawyers to educate themselves and get knowledge about it and for the community to work together and for people who do other services like people who provide financial services to our clients. We need to know about these dynamics and be able to respond to them appropriately because it certainly isn't a, a one size fits all kind of a scenario. I guess my, my closing thought would be, um, as you've explored here today, Sarah, we don't have a perfect system. There's no perfect system in place that's gonna solve everybody's problems. But um, I think a common thread here is, number one, there's lots of support out there. There's different groups and organizations out there that can support somebody who's experiencing abuse. Um, and. Uh, you know, they should be like, reach out to those, reach out to people and, and talk about it and find some help. And, you know, sometimes even though the, the, the system is not perfect, I know that it's full of people that are, that really are just trying to do their best. And, um, you know, to just be aware that it's not perfect, but sometimes that system is what you got to use, whether that's calling child welfare or having to go to court, um, it, that can be a lot better than the alternative. Yeah. And I think you, I keep adding on to everybody's closing comments. So this podcast has been going forever, but I trust that you'll edit appropriately. Um, no, it's I agree there, there are lots of resources in Edmonton. 
um, there's not necessarily lots of resources everywhere. And I think it's important for us when we're thinking about where our dollars go, whether that's, you know, what government we support or whether that's what we do with our own charitable donations or however we want to approach that. Let's not forget about this family violence supports. It's really Mm -hmm. important to have those supports in place. And if anyone's thinking about where their charitable dollars should go, this is one area among many Mm-hmm. <laughs> where um, these supports are really important to have in place for people um, so that it is, I think it is true that in Edmonton there are a lot of supports available. It's not true everywhere and it may not be true forever. So mm-hmm. we yeah. need to keep that in mind. Thank Excellent you, Sarah. Point, Thanks yeah. again so much for coming. This has been Access to Justice and uh, we will see you next time. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Bye. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Mallory Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Mallory, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Mallory, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Stole my heart from my lips. That was it.